This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And today I'm joined via Zoom by my co-host Jeff Klein and Mike UC. Before we begin, I want to remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Mike and Jeff, how are you today? I'm good. I'm better. (laughs) I want to go second next time, Ann. (laughs) Okay. All right. Already a competition. And since I see we have a little bit of a competition, I'm going to ask a little warm-up question for both of you. Last night was the uh, uh, inaugural game of the NFL season. First football game of the season. And I'm just wondering uh, what your take is on leadership in the sports field. And now I know I've teed up football, but you can choose any sport. Mike, I know you're a baseball fan, for example. So Jeff, Mike, anyone want to take that? Jeff, go for it. <laughs> I have a feeling that's my punishment for uh, exactly. <laughs> for winning, declaring that I was better than Mike Yusee. <laughs> right. I see how it goes. Well, the, the interesting thing about leadership in the sports context to me is that it's, it, it's a constant laboratory for leadership skills, for leadership skills, for teamwork skills. And sports... Um, you know, stands out as a profession where your actions are visible, where the the outcomes, the impacts are measurable, they're they're tangible, they're viewable by others. And so it it feels to me that one of the things that happens in sports leadership is that accountability uh, is you know, very present uh, from the early days because you've got fans watching you, if your teammates watching you, if your other team. Um, and so you have to get comfortable with both the success side and the failure side. Um, and I find the way that athletes and, and coaches and general managers do that to be endlessly fascinating. Jeff, I agree. Wonderful. Mike, how about you? Yeah, I just very briefly, kind of a lead into the discussion we're going to have with our distinguished author today. And that is, as we know, in professional sports, there is a significant home field or home court advantage. Mm. And um, and that's probably going to, much of that's probably going to disappear without the fans there. To, or, or we had a few fans last night in the Kansas mm-hmm. City game. And it's just a reminder that as we speak to an audience, as we work with a group, as we lead a company, as we are on the field in an NFL or NBA game, that our performance is very important to create the the right impact. Having said that, it's also interactive in that athletes on the field, teachers in the classroom are also affected by the way the audience is there, the extent to which they're cheering when we say something, or do something on the field. 
And so I'd love uh, maybe to take a few minutes with our author today to talk about that interactive effect. We need to be effective, but we also are affected by the effect we have on others. Oh, Mike, wonderful, and thank you so much. And so let me not delay and welcome today, Steve Hers to the program. Steve, welcome. Thank you for having me, and, and I'm really excited to be here to talk to you guys. Well, we're really happy to have you. And let me just say a little word about you. You are a distinguished author. You're the author of a new book called Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to Get Exceptional Results. Your book was also nominated for the Next Big Idea Club, nominated by Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwell. You're president of the Montag Group, a sports and entertainment talent and marketing consultancy. So Steve, we really are excited to have you here today on the show. I might, uh, I, I like to start sometimes with uh, just maybe a little bit of a, a personal question. I, I always read dedications and I loved yours. I thought it was very, very wonderful where you wrote to your wife, to my wife, Raquel, who thankfully took yes for an answer on our wedding day. <laughs> Lovely, beautiful dedication. And I'm just wondering if off the top of your head, you have some, some tips for us on when to know when to say yes and when to know when to say no. Well, first of all, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I would say that in the context of my book, a lot of people have made fun of me, including my own kids now, whenever I say yes to them. It, it's, it's really about don't take yes for an answer in a, in a metaphorical sense. And also don't take yes for an answer in the sense of trying to keep improving yourself in this world you know, I, I talk about it from the communications mechanism and from the professional development. So I, I think you do have to, you know, you, you don't want to get into a situation where you're in a uh, in an endless pit of, of, of you you can never be satisfied or, or, or never, like I said, take yes. So in my case, you know, I got married at 40. My parents had given up on me at the point where I met Raquel. And I remember my dad was... Um, was stuck in New York. They were living in Florida at the time. They still are. They had moved down there and they were stuck because of a hurricane and he was stuck in New York. And we, we had dinner, just the three of us. My mom was still down there and I went to the bathroom and apparently he told Raquel, you know, good luck with my son. It's, it's not going to be. And then he repeated that at the wedding. And, and, and so I just think I was very lucky. I found someone that is very compatible for me, who loves me, who understands that I, I'm a very quirky person. And, um, and we've had, thank God, a great marriage for almost 15 years now. So I think it was, you just kind of have to know that sometimes you got you to gotta stop it and, and, and think that this is a great situation for you. Oh, so good. Well, thank you for sharing that, Steve. Let me just also ask about the three key words after the colon, authority, warmth, and energy. Why these three? Well, I, I think what happened was is, this book is the culmination of my almost 30 years as a talent agent and really observing, frankly, almost feeling like you had a test tube to see why does one person become relatively more successful than another when they seem almost identical in their academic background, their work ethic, they're, they're showing up on time, et cetera. So you're talking about two good people, right? And yet one goes much higher and reaches his or her potential much closer than the other. And I saw this repeatedly over the years. And 
So I ultimately, it falls back on this study that I cite in the book, this what I call the 85-15 rule, which is that only 15% of your success, according to the Carnegie Foundation study from 1918, is correlated and causally related. I always say that because I know academics like you always say causation does not equal correlation. <laughs> so this is both causally and correlated to success, professional success. It's a very small number. And so that's kind of what I had observed all these years, because what you have is all these people that I've represented who wanted to go work at CNN or, 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 or ESPN or what have you, they all were smart. They all worked hard. They all had the same ultimate uh, underlying qualities. And so they had that 15%. They were all good at the technical part of the job. And then the 85% is the non-technical part. So I just decided, how can you explain this to people, this 85% in a very simple way, almost like creating a hack, you know, like a, a really simple hack. And what I observed is that the people that were more successful, that reached their potential, again, all things being equal otherwise, were the ones that people liked, people trusted, and people really felt were very competent and could have influence and have responsibility. So awe, authority, warmth, energy, it's just basically an acronym to kind of unpack that idea, if, if that you know makes sense to you. It does. Thank you so much. And I could keep going, but since we have both Mike and Jeff here, I want to make sure I make room for other voices. So Mike, how about you? What follow-up question would you ask? Yeah, Steve, I'm going to jump in um, with a question again about your wife. So thank you for getting <laughs> us going that way. And you kept the book going that way, being kicked under the table at a dinner party. And it's sort of a metaphor for what you're going to argue so <laughs> tell us what happened in that uh, particular dinner party and why you got kicked by your wife under the table and how this led into um, oh, AWE. Well, I've been kicked so many times that I'm not sure I can remember at that exact moment, but my wife is a very, very, um, like she's very buttoned up. She's German. And she comes from uh, like a, I, I don't want to call it a Victorian household, but for lack of a better word, a Victorian household. Um, she, she has amazing manners and she'll never, ever get angry with someone publicly except me. Huh? She won't. Um, she's just a, a very impeccable human being. And I, I joke around that she married down a cast to marry me. <laughs> and um, I think it's just a question of, like, I have a form of social Tourette's disease, you know, where I, I can't not say what's on my mind. And sometimes that's wrong. And, and, and I think what, 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 what she kicks me about is if someone will ask me, uh, they'll, they'll give me an idea or they'll tell me about some, you know, job that they're doing, or it could be anything, literally it could be politics, which I've tried to stay away from more lately, but, and I'll just say, I, I don't like that idea. I think that's a dumb idea. Uh, you know, right now we're dealing, this is politics, but we're dealing with a, an issue. We live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and there's a whole thing going on with, with there's been a lot of homeless move to the neighborhood. Now they're moving out and there's a lot of controversy around it. And of course I have my opinions on it. And, and, and that's the kind of thing I'll get kicked under the table for. Right. So it, 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 it's, it's endless, Mike, sorry. Yeah, no, that's great. So, Steve, just to quickly take this into the sort of the theme of the show, leadership and action, we tend to focus on business, but we do get into all kinds of other institutions and settings. But my question specifically here is about becoming a business manager and rising up the ranks in a private enterprise. 
And as I'm looking through your, your specific points on standing more erect and using good voice and making eye contact, all that makes certainly complete sense to me and is probably pretty vital in business. So when you reference the 15% factor, do you think that your framework and that particular statement about 15% is, uh, call it um, your performance and the other 85% is your presentation and beyond, do you think that applies to the business setting as well? What, what do you think? Well, I, I think two things. I think one, I wouldn't call the 15% your performance. I would actually call the 85% your performance, which is the, the um, so it's, it's hard because they, they blur into each other. The, the 15% is the job. I call it the job job, right? So I, I, I always like to use the example of the dentist. And, um, you know, part of the reason is that I've had a lot of issues with my teeth. In fact, I, 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 I told the story once before, but in April, we, we, we were out on Long Island for a long time, and I, I bit into a piece of corn, and my front tooth fell out. Literally, the entire tooth fell out. I've had some of these issues before I lost it playing racquetball years ago, and it's been problematic. And here I am with no front tooth. And I'm on Long Island and Governor Cuomo has canceled all the dentists. He shut down all their offices and I'm just scrambling to find somebody. And I, I found this dentist named Dr. Richard Richter. And he gets me on the phone and he says, look, you need a new tooth. And I have a 3D printer and I've done 300 teeth in the last year alone, making them with a 3D printer. And come in tomorrow morning. I have an office in Patchogue. It was about an hour from where I was. You'll be out of my office in two hours with a brand new tooth. And I, I said, this guy's got awe. He, he spoke with authority. He, he spoke with warmth. I'm going to take care of you. And he was energetic. He was actually excited to get back to his office. He had been shut down for about six weeks, but this was an emergency so he could come back. And he brought his wife to handle the insurance. He brought his son in, literally, who's not the dentist, to do the suction. And two hours later, I was out with a brand new tooth. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love Dr. Richard Richter for that. But it's an example of... I have no idea if he's a good dentist. I still don't know. I mean, I, I, I think so because he gave me a great tooth, but I certainly didn't know when I was hiring him for the job job, you know, to make a brand new front tooth, which is a pretty important thing to do. And so the, the, the 85% is really everything other than the job at hand. And, and you don't get the job unless you can do all the things Dr. Richard, Richard Richter was able to do. Uh, so a quick comment then over to Anne, because I think she wants to introduce something then to Jeff, obviously. Uh, nicely put, I love the illustration. We all got to get the job done. That's a given. Everything else is, call it voluntary. We can decide to do it or not. Anne, back to you. All right. Very good, Mike. I just want to remind everyone this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall. I'm here, joined virtually by Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem, and our guest, Steve Hers, author of Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to Get Exceptional Results. Jeff, how about you? We want to get you in the conversation. All right. Well, thanks, Ann. Uh, and Steve, as we're talking about awe, as we're talking about this, this framework, which includes authority and warmth and energy, I wonder if you could just say a few more words about how you arrived at, at awe as a framework and, um, you know, maybe an example, uh, uh, again, that really kind of brings that to life for us. Sure. 
Well, it, it, it really started, I, I wrote about this a little bit in the book, but I'll expand a little bit more on it. I, I graduated from law school, Vanderbilt Law School in 1991, and infamously was told by a partner at a law firm that I did not have what it took to be a good lawyer. And he was great in a way. It was very harsh feedback, but it, it really changed the entire trajectory of my life. And it was a great example of tough love and something I, I could talk about later. I think for any uh, you know, great company, great culture to exist, you have to have tough love. You have to hold people to high standards, but you have to show them that you care about them and support them. And, and that's what that gentleman, Turner Smith, did for me. He showed me tough love. And I went on and became a talent agent because of that situation. And I was very frustrated with the talent business. It would be the equivalent of working in a restaurant and nobody ever making the food, nobody ever tasting the food, nobody ever caring about how the food tasted, any of that stuff. And it was just motivated by a financial outcome. That was it. Nobody else, nobody cared about anything else. And, and here I am, a relatively idealistic 27, 28, 29-year-old going through my 20s and more and more, uh, frankly, despondent and frustrated. And is this really the world? Like, are people that uh, disassociated from the task and the actual making of the product? And I, I quit my job and I ran to this guy named Alfred Geller in an elevator and gave him this elevator pitch. And he was a guy that was pretty legendary in the business. I, I didn't know this at the time, what, what made him so legendary. And I ended up starting a business with him. Mm. We started a partnership where he, he was a very big news agent. He represented a lot of the biggest names in the TV news business at the time. And I had, you know, had this sports background for sports media. And we, we joined together and Geller was obsessed with making the food. That's all he cared about. I, I, I was so excited to be with essentially, I was in cooking school metaphorically. And, mm -hmm. and, and he cared about voice and all the granularity of voice, resonance and pitch and vocal variance and cadence. And he had literally libraries and libraries of, of audio and videotapes analyzing all this from James Earl Jones to there was a guy named Harry Carson who played for the New York football giants. And he had this very uh, raspy voice. And Alfred used to sit with me and show me why this voice was resonant and why this one wasn't. He, he kept tapes on Al Michaels from the 70s through the 90s and showed how his pitch had gotten deeper and why that had played a role in his career. And so he also had all these things on, on, on different ways of connecting with people. And through him, I got to meet this woman named Lillian Wilder, who was a very famous presentation coach. And you know that just kind of lit this match in my life at, at that point. I ended up leaving Alfred and starting my own business a, a little while after, but I kept on with this educational process. I took classes at NYU. I ended up doing stand-up comedy. I did improv comedy. I, I took a writing class. I, I took voice classes. I did singing, breathing, anything I could do to learn how to make the soup, so to speak, you know? And awe was just an outgrowth of really trying to figure out a way, frankly, Jeff, to package this idea, just to package mm -hmm. it in a way that people could understand it and make it very easily accessible. Because there's a lot of complexities to this, you know? And I thought if you could just give them a very simple way of having the presence of mind to know in the moment, am I really coming across with a level of authority that I want? How am I energizing or not energizing the room? And am I connecting with someone else? And so that's what all is. That's fantastic, Steve. And back to you.
All right, very good. I, I may have a little bit of a follow-up for you, Steve, before we come up on what we call, and uh, I've learned in the biz, a soft break. Um, you know, you're, we're using the word authority, and I know from co-teaching with Mike and with Jeff that people talk about authority in different ways and distinguish it from power or from influence. So when you think about authority, what do you have in mind? I, again, I, I think about all this under the context of stylistic authority and stylistic warmth, stylistic energy. Uh, so authority, especially in the stylistic point, is, is the one. Because authority does lend itself to being understood as the actual competence of the job job, which we talked about earlier. But this is not how I'm referring to it. I'm referring to it in terms of the performance or the, or the presentation, if you will, of what Mike said earlier. That's how I see it, is, is a stylistic authority. So again, like you could be the world's greatest professor, but if you don't come across with that level of stylistic confidence and you're not emotionally committed to your message in front of the classroom, you, you may be the greatest you know, substantively, but you're not gonna win the room stylistically and you won't get you know, the kinds of students you want to study under you, et cetera. Now, in academia is a little different because you might be able to write some great papers and get influenced that way. And, and, and so that's a little bit of a glitch in my, you know, my, 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 my thesis here. But this is really more for um, nonverbal, right. uh, you know, you know verbal and nonverbal, nonwritten. Right. And I follow you. And the same holds true with warmth and energy. You're really talking about the presentation of authority, warmth and energy. So now, as Mike and Jeff know, know, I often think of this show as being very therapeutic. So here, Steve, I need your help. I am teaching. I'm teaching our incoming class of Wharton undergraduates. I am co-leading and responsible for the education of 600 students in classes of 60. I have six classes of 60 all on Zoom. And when I open up my PowerPoint slide deck, if I'm lucky, I see one little square in the right-hand corner. Just to use a metaphor here, and since you're in sports, I know you'll appreciate it. It reminds me of swimming in a lake and not being able to see the bottom. <laughs> I'm doing a soliloquy. <laughs> No, no, so I get how it. Do, I need help, Steve. How do I convey authority, warmth, and energy in a virtual platform? And I know that the businessmen and women listening to us are asking some of the same questions. So how do we do it in the in the uh, era of COVID nineteen? Well, l l let me let me ask you a question, and I'm hoping you're going to give me a good answer here. <laughs> See, therapeutic. <laughs> do, do do you have the option to switch to an active speaker view? Uh, I'm sorry, with a, a grid view where you can at least see some of the students? I do. Yes, I do. Okay. And I do right, I prefer that. Yes. I can solve your problem then. Okay, good. Okay. This, is, this, is, this is good. So <laughs> this, is what I, this is what I've done, and I, I found it to be very successful. I actually coached some, some investment banks on this a little bit, which is that I think that what you do is you, you find the nine people and you ask people to turn their camera on. At least you can get you know, a few volunteers. And then in the middle of your lecture, you know, you point to, you say, and, and they're, maybe they're on mute, but you say, Jeff, I feel like you get my message here. Give me a thumbs up if we're on the same page. And then Jeff will hopefully give you that thumbs up. That's what I've had. And it becomes much more interactive. And then you say, Mike, you seem a little like, I'm, have I lost you here? Or, or are we still, we still good? And then Mike will give you the thumbs up. And just by stopping, 
every few minutes and engaging with a few people, I think all the other people feel engaged with, and certainly those people in the front row, so to speak, will feel engaged with, and you've got them a little bit more on their toes. And then it also makes you feel less alone in the room. Oh, and yeah. I, I think it really changes the entire dynamic. And I've done this a lot now. And I find that, you know, by the time it's all over, I've got like nine or 10. And sometimes I even scroll the second page. I'll say, don't fall asleep on me, Bill. You're in the second page, but I see you here. I see you. And um, it just really creates a, a much more level of interactivity. It's obviously synthetic, but people love it. And they, they know you might call on them again. That's so great. And now I will share when I've had opportunity to do maybe a, a one-off guest lecture with a smaller group, um, I will do something that I've, we've nicknamed, maybe this is common in the business, popcorn, where I will call on one student and ask that student to call on the next student. Right. <laughs> they sit <good> at attention. <laughs> it's an old look, fraternity are you, trick. Are you are you able to ask questions during your, your, your lectures or is that not the typical norm? I, I am, but you know, I'm a little afraid to staring at 60 little boxes. No, again, I, I ask questions of people. I try to make them questions that aren't gotcha questions, but I, I, I'll even ask someone their opinion. You know, I just said this about authority. How does that resonate with you, Jeff? Is that something you agree with? And it's okay if you don't. Um, get, what, what, what kind of feeling do you get from this? Is this something that relates to your life? And invariably, they'll start to talk. And again, it, it really, I, I find it very effective. You write a lot about feedback. In fact, that's embedded in the title. Don't take yes for an answer because very often we get, you're doing great, doing just fine, doing great. And could you just say a little bit about the barrier to what I like to think of as honest and I hope benevolent feedback? What are some barriers to feedback? Well, I think there's a, a lot of barriers, but one that immediately comes to mind that I didn't really talk about in the book is that there's no benefit necessarily for the feedback giver. There's only risk. If, if you uh, are giving someone feedback that maybe doesn't want it, maybe isn't able to hear it, isn't open to it, even, even in a work context, you, you, you run the risk of alienating a relationship. You, you, you run a, a lot of different risks there. And so... That, that's a huge barrier to it, which is why I'm trying to take this uh, whole entire topic and turn it inside out. And, and, and I, I want to say that my book is called Don't Take Yes for an Answer. Right. That's the key word. Not don't give yes for an answer. It, it, it's, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's the most, I think the best cultures, company cultures, and I think the one that we've hopefully created at our little company is that we have people that demand demand a no, demand better, demand an, an answer to what they can be doing better, not, not just um, taking the yes for an answer. So it, it's the person that stands the most to benefit from the feedback is, is the one that has to change that calculus, I think. Yeah, Steve, I really appreciate your response to that. Um, the Jeff, Mike, and I talk about interpersonal communication and giving and taking feedback. And there's been a lot written about giving feedback and how to give it well, you know, make it mutual, make it you know, direct and actionable and timely and so on. But there's not a lot written about how to take feedback. And I think that is where your book really, really stands out. We have to be, we have to want it <laughs> and we have to be open to it. So that's really is, that's a service. So, Jeff, let me pull you into the conversation and not leave you for last this time. <laughs> well, thank you, Anne. I appreciate that. 
Um, I mean, as we're talking about feedback and, and feedback processes, I'm, yeah, I'm struck by, Steve, how much of the book and, and the framework of authority and warmth and energy is, and I think you mentioned this in the first half of the show, it's, it's really about trust, right? It's about how trust is established between people, between parties. Um, what role does the kind of you know, candid feedback that you're talking about and, and these kinds of risks, what role does that play in building trust? What, what role does, does feedback play in building trust? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I never really thought about it in, in that context before. I, I've always felt that it, 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 feedback only can exist in, in a constructive way once you have trust. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure you could have it in the opposite. I, I, I think, you know, it's kind of what you said, Ann, earlier just now about how a lot, not a lot has been talked about in terms of how to, you know, take feedback, et cetera. I, I think that you have to have the necessary precondition for all this to really happen, right? And, and again, I go back to this idea of tough love, and you can talk about it in different, different ways. That's mm -hmm. just, just one way of talking about it. I think if you show um, the person you're in a relationship with and you've demonstrated it, hopefully you already have a little bit of that equity built up that, you know what, I do care about you. I, I'm actually invested in you. And, and let's say, Jeff, for example, I got to know you and I came to, you know, as a guest at your class and got to know you a little bit. And, and I really, I like you a lot and, and, and you know I like you. And I, I, you know, we've talked and maybe you have some frustrations with kind of a student feedback uh, on your, um, you, you know, the feedback forms that you get at, at Penn, I'm assuming. And, and yet, you know, you, maybe you haven't even really asked me, but because we now have this trusting relationship and you know, I really care about you and I'm vested in your success and your mm -hmm. growth, that has to be present. Because if I don't really care about your growth and your success, then I'm just giving you feedback for my own good, for my own ego, for my own ability to exert power over you. And people sense that. I think people can really sense that. So that I think is, is part of the trust equation that has to be there first before you can actually have a constructive feedback dialogue. And, and also in a perfect world, you may come to me and say, Steve, you know, I read your book. I know you do this kind of work and, and I trust you. Like, come do me a favor, come hear one of my lectures at Penn or please watch it on, on video. I'd love to know what you think. Now that's the holy grail because you, you've taken the first step. I'm not giving you feedback for myself. I've, I'm responding to you. I like that a lot, Stephen. I like, um, it's interesting, the, the open-ended nature of that request, right, in your example. Um, let me know what you think. Sometimes within the feedback literature, it's suggested that we should be really, really specific, right? That I should, I should approach you and say, you know, I've been, I've been really focused on um, my stance while I'm presenting. So can you hone in on that? And, and it's almost asking you to hone in on something while ignoring a number of other things. Um, you talked about risk being present for the feedback giver. And I feel like that invitation, which you're describing, that open-ended invitation, is a way of minimizing some of that risk um, because of the permission that you're giving um, to the other party. I, I agree. And, and, and again, I just want to hammer home this one point because it's interesting. It kind of played out in real time to me two days ago. There was a guy that used to work for me. His name is Ari Mark. 
And he left me uh, infamously one day, quit the company after five years. He asked me to have breakfast with him. And he said, I, I want to ask you as a friend and as a boss, I got a job offer at the NBA. Should I take the job or should I stay at, at, at my company was then called if management. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I love Ari. And I said, look, Unfortunately, the answer is as a friend and as your boss, you have to take this job because it's, it's really important for you. And I know you've always wanted to work at the NBA. And as much as it stinks for us to lose you, this is will be OK. And this is a much more bigger gain for you professionally. Anyway, he went on to have a very successful eight years at the NBA. Then he went to the Miami Dolphins and he had a successful run there. And now he's the number two guy at this new sports startup called the National Drone Racing League. And we've maintained a great relationship over these, what has it been, 10, 11 years since then. And he, he, he texted me the other night and said, hey, I did my first podcast. Uh, I'd love your feedback on, on my, my communication with the National Drone League. And, and, and luckily, because we have this great relationship, he knows I care about him. I ripped the poor guy to shreds, you know, <laughs> and he loved it. He loved it. He was very appreciative of that. But think about that for a second, Jeff. I killed this kid, you know, and that kid, he's <laughs> now he's 30, 37, 38 years old. Um, but he and I had an extremely c- constructive conversation around that, even though some of the feedback was very harsh. That's great. And, and Steve, maybe one final question, then I'll, I'll hand this back to Ann. So, yeah, I, I think you've really focused us on the importance of having that foundation of trust before the feedback conversation happens. What have you found at at the start of you know professional relationships at the start of personal relationships? What have you found to you know either accelerate or um, at least really create those initial feelings of trust? How, how do you get the foundation established? I think it's a couple things. I think it's, you know, right from the start, just really, truly. And, and I, I guess I do this naturally, but I find that it really enhances my life. So I would say to everybody else, this is really something that can enhance your life. Just care about people. Just literally care about people. There, there's a guy that works for us named Kevin Belby, who's really thrived. And in my very first conversation with him to interview him for the job, I just asked him, what do your parents do? And he told me that they run two McDonald's in uh, Tom's River Township, New Jersey. And we've carried on. Now he's been working for us for five years now. And we talk about McDonald's all the time. I send him articles about McDonald's and it becomes one of, the, one of the touch points in our relationship. And I think the second thing is that if you show other people that you're vulnerable, and you're not perfect, and you want their feedback. I mean, here I am, I'm 54, and most of the people that work for me at the company are in their 20s and 30s, and yet I'm constantly asking them for feedback. And because they, they know that the door is open for that, they'll often say to me, hey, you should have done this better on this Wharton you know, radio show or whatever, and they know they have that freedom and the latitude, and it becomes a very 360-degree relationship because it shouldn't be that look, we're all flawed, right? It shouldn't be that only one person is giving feedback to the other. It can't be always top down, in my opinion. That's great. Very good. I'm going to jump in and then give Mike the baton here. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall, here with Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein. And today, our guest is Steve Hers, author of Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to Get Exceptional Results. Mike, over to you. Yeah, Steve, I got an example that uh, with your commentary of the last 10 minutes uh, is, is now 
providing me with much more insight into this particular incident that occurred in my classroom a couple of years ago. Uh, the three of us often bring people who are in prominent leadership positions to meet with our students. In this case, we had the chief executive of a very large firm. I have three classes back to back, 10 minutes in between each of the three class sessions. And at the end of the first session, the CEO turned to me and said, Mike, um, what feedback do, you, do I have for him? And I said, well, it was great. Let's just repeat that the next hour. And he said, no, 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 that's not my question. My question is, what can I do to make the next session better? So he was not taking yes. He, he really did want the feedback. And here's my insight. This, this, this is a person, the three of us know him well, uh, is just a great performer in public. He has all the moves that are so well described in your book. And I'm thinking one element of that is his willingness or his eagerness to keep an open door to use your metaphor. Steve, here's my question with that comment in the background. The phrase you used a few minutes ago is presence of mind, presence of mind. And under authoritative body language, just reading from your book here, you tell people, you suggest to people to hold your chin up, walk into a classroom, in our case, with a confident gait. Uh, think about your posture. My question is, how do you get people to really keep all those factors in their mind when we're thinking about lots of other things? How do we keep focused when everything else is kind of going in the opposite direction? What do you think? All right, so I'm going to make a confession here, live on radio. Uh, that I cannot believe you just asked me that question because that is my least favorite page of the entire book. Literally, <laughs> my least Mike. favorite page of the entire book. I hate that page, but I will answer it anyway because I think that page is, a, is, is frankly a compromise between myself and, and the people that published the book at HarperCollins, who, by the way, did a great job, a great job, honestly. Yeah. And they ripped, they rejected my first manuscript and, and, and ripped me apart. So they really, they, they, they lived the don't take yes, uh, you know, uh, ideology. But I, I don't like it because I think it's too, it's too granular and too specific. And I think that yeah. it can make you crazy to think, chin up. So, so what I would suggest is, is, is this, think about more broadly, when you read the book about awe, think about just the bigger concepts of authority, warmth, energy. Get your own awe x-ray first and foremost from a friend or you know, from, from an expert and figure out honestly, where are my strengths? Is it, is it warmth and energy? Is my weakness in authority? So if you're pretty good with authority and you have pretty good body language, just forget that. That's not where you really wanna work on. And I'm a big believer in, especially as it relates to communication, and performance, as it, as it were, we're calling this performance, your weaknesses, your blind spots are really the problem. They're the ones that are going to self-sabotage you without even knowing it. So I would say that that's my broader answer. And not to punt on your question, but to answer your question, what I would say is this. Figure out if those are areas of, of, of an issue for you, whether it's your chin is always down or you, you, you just your shoulders are hunched a lot. Then we have a very easy fix for that. And take them one at a time. Take them one at a time. So let's just say, for example, it's your shoulders are hunched over all the time, right? Start to notice other people who have hunched shoulders. This is kind of what I think is maybe the most interesting hack in the book is this idea of what I call hyper external awareness. Talking about presence of mind, it's not enough to have self-awareness. If I told you, Mike, you have hunched shoulders and you say, yeah, you're right. You know, I, I, now that you say that, I realize it. 
it's still not enough for you to make that change most likely in the moment when you're talking to Anne in a meeting or you're in another meeting with another professor or maybe some important colleague. But over time, if you start noticing, hey, you know what, Anne has really good posture and it just becomes like a little light that goes off for you. Or, you know, Jeff actually slouches a lot. And so now you have a good example and a bad example and you're just kind of bringing a little bit more situational awareness to that. And what I find is that when you create that situational awareness, over time, you create a habit. It's a habit. You now have made a habit of not having your shoulders slouched and you can take them one at a time. Because once you have that good habit, you can go on to the next thing. So I'm going to end, uh, Steve, with a, a quick follow-on question on that as follows. Um, implicit in what you're saying, it's all through the book as well, is that almost anybody can begin to think this way. So you don't have to be a genius. So you don't have to be a born natural leader to, to, to pick up on this. And I think you share our philosophy. We require all of our students to take a course in leadership on the premise that everybody can improve. And I think that's your optimistic um, kind of cut on this too. And that is almost anybody, if they become self-conscious, presence of mind can improve their, their personal presence. I'll put it that way. What, what do you think on that one? I think you just, you, you, you hit the holy grail. You summed up the entire book so perfectly. Um, I, I think it was great. I, 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 one of the, the questions I always get, which frustrates me is, well, what if I'm not naturally authoritative? Or right. what if I'm not naturally warm? Okay, fine. You know, like I'm not naturally Michael Jordan. It doesn't mean I don't want to keep playing basketball. And, and to set yourself up for these unrealistic standards is ridiculous. All that you should want to do is be a better version of yourself tomorrow than you were today. And hopefully do that every day for the rest of your life within reason. And so I, I do agree with you. You don't have to be a genius. And look, I, I think this book, hopefully people will see it as, and I'm not selling you know junk food here, but this is not hard work. This is just putting a little bit of focus and resources and attention to an area that the academic world, frankly, sorry to cut on academia here, I don't think the academic world does nearly enough in this space. Even to do one class on leadership, which is great, don't get me wrong, but here you have 21, 22, 20-year-olds, 20 whatever, however old your students are, and they're just getting one class on this awe prism. That's not enough when you think about it being 85% of the correlating factor to your success. Yep, great. And back to you. Oh, very good. Well, Steve, we have a little bit of time left, uh, and I just, I'm going to bring it full circle. You, you explained early on your interest in this topic. You know, you, you, from experience, you're looking around and you're seeing it's 15% the job, and then, you know, the vast majority has to do with success is awe. I'd just like to ask you personally, in your, in your own self-assessment of awe, where, where do you see your strengths? Is it authority? Is it warmth? Is it energy? And what have you, what kind of self-coaching have you done? It's a great question. I, I think that I'm kind of a very tough person to actually analyze on the awe spectrum because <laughs> here's the thing. My greatest strength, I think, is my energy. And uh -huh. yet that energy has come back to bite me quite a bit in my life. And mm -hmm. I talk about that a little bit in the book with that one example of the woman who my brother, I didn't say this in the book, the, the, the guy was my brother who said, we're never going to hear from that woman again. Uh, and he was right. We never did hear from her again because I blew her away with my energy. I didn't modulate it properly. So I think that, you know, this is kind of a problem for a lot of people is if you have a good authority about yourself, don't let it overcome your warmth. 
you know, try to let these things work in tandem with each other. So I think for myself, my voice tends to get a little high pitched at times, especially mm-hmm. when I get excited. So I'm working on that still. So it helps my authority. The second thing I've been working on is my wife pointed it out. I don't smile enough because I have a lot of self-consciousness about losing my teeth several different times in my life. So that hurts my warmth when I don't smile. And then the third is, which I have overcome, is the body language issue. I didn't have, I had a bad habit of folding my arms a lot when I spoke to people. And luckily that I've completely eradicated over the last few years. Oh, great. I so appreciate your sharing that, Steve. Thank you. And I, another personal question, if I may, you're a sports enthusiast. From, I'm sorry? From, you're a sports enthusiast. Yeah, I, I, I'm like one of these kids who, you know, I love sports and I'm the youngest of three boys. I also have a younger sister and we, we played a lot of sports as kids. And I, I just, I was never a great athlete and, and, and still I'm not a great athlete, but I, I, I love the, the idea of competition is so interesting to me on so many levels because it, it, it for, for, especially for a guy like me, who's not a great athlete, the, the idea of being resourceful and creative and, and, and trying to be thoughtful about the way you go about sports is, is really interesting. Example A is tennis, right? I'm not a great tennis player. Uh, I'm okay. And, and, and I also, I've had a lot of problems. I think I talked about this in the book. I had hip surgery last year. I'm waiting for hip surgery on the other hip. So, and I never was particularly fast, but I've mastered the drop shot. I can hit a drop shot from four feet behind the baseline. And I think that's the great equalizer. Sports can be great metaphors for life. If you can find your drop shot in whatever works in your business, then you can beat a guy who can serve 120 miles an hour. And you see it all the time in different forms of sports. And if you can recognize how, how those patterns work in life, it can be very beneficial to you. So maybe as a follow-up, and this is sort of full circle to the question I asked Mike and Jeff at the top, with the framework of awe in your mind, when you scan the sports arena, is there a particular coach or player or owner who stands out in your eyes as a wonderful illustration? Well, I actually think Adam Silver is a great example. you know, I, I know Adam for a long time, personally, not, not, we're not best friends by any means, but we do know each other. And, and, and I think that, that having known him all these years, he has never changed. He, he has a level of humility and vulnerability about himself in, in both the way he communicates in terms of the words he uses and also in his body language and in his demeanor, I think is, is singular uh, among all the sports commissioners. If you think about Gary Bettman, and Rob Manfred and, um, and, and Roger Goodell, there's kind of a mask that these guys wear. They don't let that mask down. And, and, and there's a lack of vulnerability, which I think hurts them. And I think Adam is such a beloved commissioner and really a beloved leader and why you see he has the, the, uh, the trust of the players and the owners, which is, again, incredibly rare, and the fans too, is because he has a level of vulnerability accompanying his leadership and his communication style that I think a lot of people could learn from. Now, just because this is uh, business radio, channel 132, is there a business leader who stands out in that regard? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous to, to, uh, <laughs> to talk about any business leader, but I, I will talk about somebody who's retired now, if you don't mind, Please. because there's a guy named George Bodenheimer, who you may know, he ran ESPN for many years. And He's so atypical of what you think of as a leader. 
that it's just it's stunning to me why people don't teach him. I mean, you should get him to come to Wharton. He, he's an amazing guy. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about George Bodenheimer. I, I met him about 10 years ago uh, at, at the Dick Vitale uh, uh, fundraiser. Dick Vitale does something for the um, Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer, which George now runs, by the way. And I met him, and now, now remember, George at this point, this point in time, he's the chairman of ESPN, Disney Media Networks, maybe one of the most connected guys on earth, right? And I, I started to talk to him about what I did, and it was with his wife, and, and he's asking me a thousand questions about me. I, I, all I want to do is learn about George Bodenheimer, but he's more interested in me. And I tell him that I'm an agent and what I do, and he tells me that his daughter is an aspiring uh, musical theater performer. And uh, if there's any way that I know someone who's an agent in the musical theater area, could I potentially make an introduction? So I knew this guy, Harry Abrams, who ran this agency called Abrams Artists, and I introduced George's daughter to Harry. But what's so stunning about that to me, and I ended up telling this story to John Skipper, who replaced George Bodenheimer, was about how, think about this, 99.9% .9 of every leader would use a favor for their child to, to get them uh, like at the William Morris Agency or CAA, whatever. And, and here's George Bodenheimer. This level of humility that this guy had was just unprecedented. And I think that's why his, his team loved him so much. And that's why everybody was willing to go to war for him on a daily basis because he had a vulnerability. He had a humility about himself and that he led in that manner. And I, I think there's way too few people who behave and lead in, from that perspective. Very good. Well, Steve, thank you so much. We have just about a minute, and I want to thank you for being on the show and give Mike and Jeff just one word that stands out if you were to do a one-word wrap-up AAR of the show. So, Mike, one word? Uh, three words. Presence of mind. All right. Jeff? All right, and I'm, I'm staying with trust. <laughs> okay, I'm going with awe. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> All right, well, Steve, once again, thank you so much for being on our show. Listeners, go out and get Don't Take Yes for an Answer Using Authority, Warmth, and Energy to get exceptional results. I want to thank everyone so much for joining us. Once again, a special thank you to our guest, Steve Hers, and I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 